Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Daybreak, the show where fun ideas and occupations come to life. We're your hosts, Bryn Campbell and Pivot Reader, and today we'll share an inspirational quote, interview Sky Harvinsberger, who is a graduate student and an entomologist at UW of Madison, Wisconsin. Then, after the announcement break, we will end this episode with the news story of Cleo the Wayward Golden Retriever, who got a little lost on her way home. Now, let's get on with the show. Now it's time for our inspiring quote to, of course, brighten your day and get you brainstorming. This week, our quote comes from poet and activist Maya Angelou. She declared in one of her poems, We delight in the beauty of the butterfly, but rarely omit the changes it has gone through to achieve that beauty. Think a little bit about that. We delight in the beauty of the butterfly, but rarely omit the changes it has gone through to achieve that beauty. What does she mean? And what can that quote mean in your own life? Anyway, once you're done thinking about it, make sure to write or draw down one change that you feel like you can make in your life to make it more beautiful, enjoyable, or just better for you. Once you're done with that, make sure to share it with someone that you know or that you trust. Now it's time to talk to Skye Harbinsberger, who is an entomologist, a person who studies insects, and she specializes in lepidopterans. So butterflies, moths, and skippers. I sat down with her recently to talk about her awesome occupation. Hi, Sky. Hi there. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good today. It's a really nice day in Madison. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So why did you choose your profession? Is there anything or anyone that inspired you? Definitely. Uh, I was really inspired by my high school biology teacher, actually. She is the one who kind of connected me with biology more than any other teacher had before. Um, I had always loved nature, but never really felt like it was my strength. And she made me feel like biology really could be for me. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. So that's that's a really good inspiration. Inspirational person, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. So what is your favorite art project or photography project that you've done? Wow, that's super tough. Um, (laughs) I love photographing um, insects, mostly landscapes, people. But I think my favorite most recent project that I've done um, actually involved photographing an uh, endangered butterfly here in Wisconsin called the swamp metalmark. Wow. Swamp metalmarks live in swamps, um, and they are extremely rare. Whoa. And I actually got to go out a few days ago and photograph one, so that was my most recent favorite photographing project. That is really cool. So what is a swamp metalock, you said? or yeah. Sure, it's a swamp metal mark. Okay. As in, like, they have metallic markings on their wings. And wow. sorry if that can't come across over here. But, oh, yeah. So swamp metal marks are these beautiful little butterflies. Uh, they rely on swamp thistle for their life cycle yeah. and actually have a lot, uh, lot less habitat than they used to. So they are exceedingly rare butterflies in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and in a couple states around the Midwest. Yeah. Wow, that's super cool. Are there any other, like, um, rare butterflies that you don't often see in Wisconsin compared to others? 
Definitely. I think Carner Blues are another one. Mm. Uh, Carner Blues, as their name suggests, they're little blue butterfly and they rely on wild lupin, if you know the flower lupin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they love lupin. They require it for their larvae, so they lay their eggs on lupin. um, And that is also an uh, endangered butterfly that has had a lot of conservation work done to protect its habitat um, in contrast to something like the swamp meadowmark that has maybe less protections um, and is maybe a little more endangered. I mean, monarchs themselves are suffering a a large decline too, as you well know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And just to give you a little bit of background on this, listeners, I really like to take care of monarchs. So um, when I got in touch with Sky, I was so excited because I got to talk to someone about one of my favorite animals in the world. (laughs) Yeah, anyway, so monarchs are, yeah, very endangered at this point. So what are some things that people can do to protect monarchs? It's a great question. I always say the number one thing that people can do to protect monarchs is plant milkweed. We have a few different species of milkweed in our state that are native. And if you can find a native milkweed, like rose milkweed or common milkweed, um, go ahead and plant it in your yard because the more milkweed that we have on the landscape, the more the monarchs will be supported. They require those milkweed stems to plant their eggs on the milkweed stems. So it's not going to help monarchs unless we actually have something for them to lay their eggs on. Mm, yeah um yeah that's the biggest thing flowering plants are great too if you can plant you know native flowering plants that's a great way to support monarchs who they they drink nectar from flowers yeah yeah. so any flowers are really are great for them so um a question sort of adding on to that is how do you build a successful pollinator garden oh a great question well, I think you look up first what's native in your area. Look up, looking up native plants can really help you narrow down the scope of plants that are going to grow well in your yard. Yeah. Um, yeah, so if you look up native plants and then refine that list further by the type of soil that you have and the exact ecoregion that you're in, you can get some good options uh, if you look for flowering plants especially. So I would say my number one tip is look for some natives look for a great source, um, and then make sure that you plant them at a good distance from each other. You know, plants really grow in (laughs) quite a bit. So when you put them in at first, they can look small and spaced apart, but really that's good for the plant because next year it'll become even bigger coming back. So yeah, especially if they come back every year, that's a really good idea. So yeah, perennials. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was wondering a little bit, um, what is one of your favorite species of butterfly or moth? Oh, such a good question. Let's see. I love Luna moths. Oh, yeah. I actually named my dog after Luna moth. (laughs) Her name is Luna. Definitely a favorite. I think that they are so ethereal and just beautiful Mm -hmm. and they don't live very long. So I think they're a really special thing to spot when you do see one. And that's moths, but as far as butterflies go, oh, that's a good question. There's so many cool ones. (laughs) I love swallowtails. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you like tiger swallowtails or black swallowtails, but those have been favorites for a while. Yeah, yeah. So what do some of those butterflies look like, like a tiger swallowtail and 
a Luna Moth for the listeners sure. who haven't seen some. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so Luna Moths are big green moths. They're in the family Saturnaeidae, and the Saturnaeids are silkworm moths. So they yeah. spin silk cocoons, mm-hmm. um, and they're usually larger than your average moth. Um, mm-hmm. They're seen as more ornate. So yeah, they're they're quite beautiful. They've got really fuzzy green scales mm-hmm. all over their wings. And then tiger swallowtails are a quite a big yellow butterfly with some black striping down it, which gives it its name. Um, similarly, black swallowtails look like tiger swallowtails, but they're mostly black. And a feature of swallowtails is that they have tails on their hind wings that look like a like kind of like a barn swallow. Mm-hmm. So they have a beautiful kind of loop that goes around the bottom of their wings, their hind wings. Wow, that sounds so beautiful. Yeah. So um, I'm wondering what kind of flower attracts, you know, a monarch or a tiger swallowtail or any kind of butterfly or moth that was interested in, you know, using nectar and pollinating. Yeah, basically. That is such a good question because there are certain flowers that butterflies tend not to land on and pollinate and drink nectar from. And I really love uh, flowers that form an umbel for butterflies. Mm. Um, Umbel is kind of like an umbrella-looking flower, so it has lots of little flowers for Mm. the butterflies to land on. Bees love that too. Um, So things like... If you see wild carrot around, they love that. Um, uh, or parsley, other flowers. I mean, milkweed is great too. It kind yeah. of forms that big ball of flowers. <laughs> Anytime there's lots of little flowers built into a bigger flower, I love that for butterflies because it means they have a lot of different sources of nectar that they mm. can go after. Um, yeah, let's see. So goldenrod is good. Um Mm-hmm. There are, I'm trying to think of what I have in my garden. <laughs> Bergamot is great. Sunflowers, there's um, quite a few wild native sunflowers um, to our state. So I like to recommend those because they have lots of tiny flowers in them as well. Yeah. So is there anything that makes those plants really cool to butterflies or is that yet to be found out yet? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Well, see, I think the... The best thing for butterflies in terms of flower morphology and like the way that the flower is actually physically formed. Um, what makes a flower good for a butterfly is when it has mm-hmm. a really easy time getting its proboscis, the tongue, the straw-like tongue that the butterfly has. Yeah. If it can more easily go into that flower and drink mm-hmm. nectar from it, that's really what makes a good butterfly flower, um, butter plant for a butterfly. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So um, going on to a different part of your career, sort of, um, what are some steps that you have taken to help the environment? And what are some steps that people, just people out in the street, people that I know, anyone can take to help save the environment? Yeah, so many good things that can be done, especially right now. It's such a critical time to really take action. Mm, As we've already talked about, I think, 
planting pollinator gardens is a great way to support your local insect diversity, the species of insects that are around you. Um, it's really important that we take care of insects because a lot of other organisms in the food web really rely on them as a basis. Yes. I mean, and they also provide lots of ecosystem services for us, like pollination. Mm -hmm. So if you can plant a pollinator garden to support your local pollinators, that's really great. Um, I think one thing that gets overlooked sometimes is actually picking up litter. I think picking up litter is a great thing that you can do at any time and any place. If you see something, just go ahead and pick it up and find a trash bin to put it in because that piece of litter is blocking some flower from growing. And maybe that would help, you know, pollinators too, if we were able to clean up our environment and let it thrive a bit better. Hmm, yeah. And also in this time, yeah, but be careful when you're picking up litter. Of course, if it's glass, but yes, it's always exactly yeah, yeah. But it's a always very good important point. to yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so tell me a little bit about your work in Costa Rica. What was that like? Oh wow, yes, so <laughs> much fun. I had a awesome opportunity to go to Costa Rica and study some of the native butterflies there. Wow. My project was really examining the caterpillars that and the the butterflies and moths basically that eat this tree. Mm -hmm. And um this tree Pentaclethra macroloba, it doesn't Whoa. have a common name, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but that big name for this tree that grows in lowland rainforests in Costa Rica um, we know that it's important for the ecosystem, but mm -hmm. we don't know so many things about it. And my project was really to clarify the things that eat it. Um, so that can give us an idea of how many organisms rely on this tree wow. and yeah. how the nutrients from this tree cycle through the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. That is so cool. So what did you find? Right. So my project, I took uh, collections from these trees. I found these trees in the rainforest and then I would search them for caterpillars. I would also look for butterflies laying eggs on them. If mm -hmm. that happened, collect the eggs. But otherwise, I would collect caterpillars and, and rear them. So I would take them oh. back to our kind of live lab that was uh I would say adjusted to the proper temperatures of the rainforest yeah. so that things could actually live there that lived in the rainforest, but just in captivity. Mm. So raise the caterpillars there. And then at that point when they pupate and then come out of their pupa yeah. uh, or chrysalis, they can be identified. So I came out with a catalog of the names of the butterflies and moths that I could identify that ate this tree. The leaves wow. of this tree so yeah yeah it it went into the records of the biological research station there in costa rica um and so they'll have that for any future projects that they take on to come that is super awesome so what is biodiversity Biodiversity is a term that we use to describe all of the different types of organisms in one place that we're interested in. Mm -hmm. um, and it really takes into account the number of different species and the number 
of individuals of those different species, if that makes sense. So it's yeah. a multi-dimensional way to look at the makeup of an ecosystem. And it kind of describes the level of variation of just the, the amount of variety of species in an ecosystem. Wow, yeah. So like, um, what, so biodiversity is basically the amount and variety of a species in like a group or in like a habitat, right? So yeah, what's the biodiversity, I guess, of a Wisconsin prairie? Oh my gosh, yes. Biodiversity of a Wisconsin prairie might be one of my favorite biomes to study and (laughs) organisms to look at because it is so rich in insects. And if we're talking about insect biodiversity, there is so much variety in terms of bumblebees, of butterflies, beetles, um, everything you can imagine. I mean, moths too, worms, (laughs) everything. (laughs) Not an insect, by the way, but important nonetheless. So the biodiversity of prairies, if we're not talking about insects, also includes birds. Yeah. It includes plant life. So we have flowering plants, grasses, all the kinds of varieties in between there. Um, in terms of bird, to uh, wrens, to um, hawks and birds of prey. I think mm. even humans are a part of the biodiversity of prairies. And yeah. for a long time in the U.S., the you know, in, in the land that is the U.S., humans interacted with prairie all year round. I mean, we, um, not we, but native peoples in these lands burned prairies to retain them. I mean, you have to, the, the, the special thing about prairie biodiversity is that it's maintained yeah. with human assistance, kind of. I say assistance uh, in kind of sarcastic quote marks because Sometimes it can be done with natural causes, like from a lightning strike, a fire can start. But if you love prairies, you might have found out that prairies are maintained by fire uh, in order for preventing woody vegetation from growing in. Mm -hmm. So because of that, we, we have created this kind of niche environment where a number of different insects can thrive because it's this awesome grassland but it also has flowering plants. It has rich soil and perennial plants that have incredibly intricate root systems. So the mm. soil is held together in a special way. Um, and it just creates this environment where so many things can thrive. And yes. um, that is why I find biodiversity of prairie the coolest because it's so rich in, in species and often in just the amount of habitat that it can provide. So mm-hmm. then if we bring in that quantity part of biodiversity and you find that there are, you know, more ladybugs in a prairie than in maybe some urban spaces or in some monocropped agricultural spaces. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. So, um, like, when you burn down a certain part of the prairie, I think it's called a controlled burn, right? Yes, that's okay. correct, or a prescribed burn, yeah. Cool. So when you do a controlled burn or a prescribed burn, 
How do you keep it controlled? Oh, so I am not someone who often does prescribed burns, yeah. at least not professionally. Mm -hmm. I have participated in a few, which has been really eye-opening. Um, and you have to know what you're doing. It's yeah. really important that, A, you know what you're doing or somebody <laughs> yeah. else does that's with you. <laughs> yeah. And that you yeah. pretty much have the fire department on call in case it goes mm -hmm. wrong. But in order to do it safely, um, you have to understand which way the wind is blowing mm -hmm. so that your fire doesn't blow in the wrong direction. Um, and then make sure that the flames aren't getting too high because when they get too high, they can actually leap over uh, an area and Whoa. move into an area that you don't want to burn. So oh it's really important that you control the heat of the fire and the intensity and the amount that is being burned at once. So often people doing prescribed burns will um, start at one end of the field and then work their way across um, mm -hmm. in a way that only an area that could potentially be put out with water by that crew is being yeah. burned at any one time. Mm -hmm. That's really, really smart. And it's important to stay safe when you're doing mm -hmm. a controlled burner, or of course, anything with fire. But um, especially when you're doing something like a really big, you know, field or something that could, I never knew that flames could leap over things, but, you know. It's a little crazy, <laughs> but yeah, definitely yeah. something to be aware of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but that was, yeah, definitely. Well, what is your definition? This is a question before I ask it. This is a question that we ask everyone who comes to the show because everyone has such interesting and unique answers. So what is your definition of success? Ooh, my definition of success certainly involves a level of personal happiness that yeah. I think can only really be achieved when you find a purpose in life that fits your values. Um, so finding, if we're talking about an occupation, finding a job that fits how you believe to better the world or something like that, I, I find that that is really where uh, mm -hmm. success can influence happiness, I guess. So it's all wrapped up into one there, but, but um, success involves, oh gosh, whatever you kind of imagine it to be. I mean, we all have different ideas of what makes us successful in yeah. life. And I think, I think something to keep in mind um, when you're searching for how to be successful is mm -hmm. that it's a process. It's a, it's a journey rather than a destination. So the steps that you take in order to become successful are just as important as how or where you end up in the end, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so along the way, if you can keep your focus on things that, as I mentioned before, align with your values, I think you'll end up in a more successful place. Um, but it's really for me about how, how I get there. So I'm on this process of trying to create a successful career for myself. Um, and I don't think I have, you know, reached any certain point, but at the same time, I've kept moving in a direction that aligns with my values and mm. aligns with kind of what makes me happy, which involves a lot of being outdoors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Wow, that is a really good definition of success. And everyone who comes on the show seems to have a new and awesome answer to this question. So it's really great to hear that. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sky, for joining me um, today. It was really cool to learn about all the work you do and learn more about one of my favorite animals and probably, hopefully, all the listeners' favorite animals now, too. <laughs> But yeah, thank you so much for all the things that you do and thanks for letting me interview you. Absolutely, thank you. And it's so nice to meet you and be on your show. Awesome, bye. Bye. Thank you, Pippin Sky, for that amazing interview. I think we all learned a lot. Now, after the break, it is time for us to hear about a golden retriever named Cleo and her adventurous journey. Hi, this is Pippa from the Daybreak Podcast, and I just want to talk to you guys a little bit about a company that me and my friend started late last year. It is called DNM Graphic Novel Library. This is how it works. So, off you go into our website, which is in a link in the show notes, make sure to check that out, you can click signing up and choose your subscription type, either standard, which is $8, or premium, which is $13, fill out a quick form, um, of course, deposit your money for the month, and then you're done. So, what you get with this subscription is that you can rent out, like, two every week of our hundred or more, like, graphic novels and magazines. They're all super good, and you can find something for every person. Maybe you've not heard of graphic novels before. Maybe you have. It's your your call, whatever kind of graphic novel you want. But you're only allowed to do two a week. Then, if you live in the Dungeon Monroe neighborhood, we will deliver a graphic novel to your door that you choose. And if you don't, then you can just come and pick it up at our home base. Also, if you come and sign up now, you get 15% off with a special code on our Facebook page that you can check out. Also, one more thing. Um, one graphic novel usually costs like $8.00. So, this is a really good deal because you're getting, like, 16 graphic novels if you did two months for the price of two graphic novels, which is crazy. So, make sure to check it out if you've never heard of graphic novels. If you have, if you're really into them, this is the thing for you. Remember, it's in the show notes, and how you sign up is you click signing up on our website, and then you click standard or premium, and then you fill out the form. Thanks so much, and now back to the show. Welcome back to Daybreak. It's new story time. Have you ever seen the movie Homeward Bound? Well, if you haven't, it's a movie that tells a story of an adventurous golden retriever who embarks on a treacherous long journey with two other animals. And if you can believe it, that story just came to life. A four-year-old golden retriever named Cleo traveled 60 miles on her own to get back home. Only it was the wrong one. She had gotten confused and ended up at the home she and her owners had moved out of two years ago. From Kansas to Missouri, over the course of only a week. When the new owners of Cleo's old home found her on the porch step, they were surprised to find out she belonged to the house's former owners. Using Facebook, the new owners found where Cleo was meant to be and she was reunited with her owners. 
but they're all still at a loss on how Cleo made it all those miles. Just like in the movie, she would have had to cross a river to make it back to where she did. What Cleo did was amazing, but we all better make sure our pets don't get inspired and try to go on a journey of their own. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Daybreak. We're your hosts, Bryn Campbell and Pippa Schrader. Special thanks to John Schrader, who is away helping some friends and family in need, Bryn Campbell, who is my co-host, and, of course, to all of you listeners listening out there, and to Sky Harmonberger, who was our awesome, awesome interview today. Well, thanks so much for listening, and until next time, Pippa, signing off. Thank you.